0: You have to ask yourself three questions. Number one, does it need to be said? Number two, does it need to be said now? And number three, does it need to be said by me? And if you can't answer all three of those questions with a yes, you keep your mouth shut, lose the battle, walk away, keep your head up high.
1: text international. this is blunt dissection. I'm Dave Nickl. On today's show, I'm joined by Dr. Robert Hilsenroth. Dr. Hilsenroth was born and raised in the Washington, D.C. area and graduated from the University of Georgia in 1971. After a year in practice, he took the bold step of moving to Colorado and opening a small animal practice as a relatively inexperienced vet and business person. Things, however, clearly worked out as he owned the practice for the next 19 years. There were highs and lows, including frustration with how the media handled veterinary issues. And as such, Dr. Hilsenroth was drawn to develop his media skills further so he could better contribute to and improve the quality of reporting on important local and national veterinary affairs. This investment paid off and for a decade he was employed by the ABC television affiliate KUSA as their pet health expert. He also hosted radio talk shows and wrote weekly newspaper columns. In 1991 his career changed course quite dramatically as he sold his practice and began a 13-year tenure with the Morris Animal Foundation, an organisation funding health studies for dogs, cats, horses and wildlife. Initially joining as a staff veterinary communications officer, Dr. Hilsenroth's skills allowed him to be identified and successfully appointed as the foundation's executive director in short order. When he first began this role, the foundation was funding only two studies in the zoo and wildlife division. When he got done more than a decade later, that same division was funding more than 30 studies. Dr. Hilsenroth retired, and I say that with very big air quotes around it from the Morris Animal Foundation in April 2004 and moved to northern Florida to enjoy fishing and the quiet life. Or so he thought. Talent, however, does not often get the luxury of going quietly into the night and it was not long before the American Association of Zoo Veterinarians came calling on his leadership experience. Those calls, whilst initially rebuffed, were in the end effective and in 2005 Dr. Hilsenroth was appointed to the role of exec director of the association, a position he still holds. Nearly 18 years later highlighting what was quite possibly one of the feeblest attempts at retirement on record. Aside from the enormous impact on zoo animals and conservation Dr. Hilsenroth has made, he has made just as significant an impact on people, amassing a wealth of learned and taught leadership experience during his career, including completion of Harvard's Executive Education Program, Strategic Perspectives and Nonprofit Management. Now, the only way to become a guest on Blunt Dissection is to be somebody I am really curious to learn about. Sometimes guests appear on my radar due to listener recommendations, feel free to shout people out. Other times, I find them through publications that they've produced. But in Robert's case, it was an entirely random meeting at lunch. I was preparing for my sessions at VMX this year that resulted in an almost instant connection. Within seconds of sitting down and listening to Dr. Hilsenroth, my ears were wide open. Within five minutes, I cursed myself for not having my recording equipment rolling. His career is fascinating, but his storytelling ability and life experiences are up there with the best. I hope you very much have a similar reaction as we dive into his story, both human and animal. So without further ado, I invite you to sit back and enjoy my conversation with the utterly fantastic Dr. Robert Hilsenroth. Welcome to another episode of Blunt Dissection. I am joined today by somebody, it took me about three seconds to know. That's actually, that was way too long. It took me about half a second to realize this was somebody I needed to have on the show. So Dr. Robert, if I may for a second, set the scene of, of how we met. We're at VMX conference and I'm walking into the very special VIP room where people who are daft enough to get up in front of room fools and speak in front of people or people wonderful enough to moderate those rooms congregate to have lunch. And if there's one thing I've learned about going in that room, it is that you assume you're the dumbest person in the room and that is absolutely the case when I walk in that room. But it's great also, the other thing I learned is that you're unlikely to ever have a dull conversation because everybody's done interesting stuff. And it's if I could bring my podcast mic out in that place, that would be, I would sit there for four days and die happy. So on one such occasion, I walked in and plonked my bum down next to my wonderful guest, Dr. Robert, who sometimes speaks a form of English, Hilsenroth.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that's an inside joke, and it's just because another (laughs) Brit refers to Dr. Robb as being, who speaks a form of English, but he says, of course, in his beautiful British accent.
1: Okay, you are going to have to explain that, because you're quite right, that was an inside joke, and uh, I couldn't resist it, but it is quite a funny story. We were talking before we jumped on about, I think that was the nicest way of
0: giving me a dig about my accent I ever had. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Basically, Doctor Cooper, John Cooper, and many of you have heard of him. He was the vet over in Rwanda during the genocide in nineteen ninety four. And at any rate, I was involved with the guerrilla doctors for years. And he would lecture, and he had a picture of a me having a meeting with the Rwandan veterinarians there. But back then, they spoke French, and um, in addition to Kenyan Rwandan. And so the picture is about six of us sitting there, and John's wife, Margaret, speaks fluent French. So I would say something to Margaret in English, and then Margaret would translate it to French to Jean Claude, one of the Rwandan veterinarians. Jean Claude would translate it into Kenyan Rwandan. They'd discuss it, it'd come back to Jean Claude. Jean Claude would translate it into French for Margaret, and Margaret would translate it into English for Dr. Rob, who speaks a form of English. <laughs> I love it. Yeah,
1: I think I knew the second I met you. I thought I, I really wished I'd had a mic when we first met and you were kind enough to agree to come on on the show today. So I think probably where I'd like to just start the interview is, is probably where I start most of the interviews. And you have got, I have your resume up in front. Of you. We normally do quite a lot of research on our guests and I have a, a wonderful person my team helps me with that called Laura. And she said, do you want me to do any research on Rob? I said, well, yeah, I think that's probably good. I said, why do you ask? Because she's super diligent. And she said, well, he's sort of done all of his research on himself for us today. And, and the resume, I'm reading it through, I'm like, wow, if I can have even a fraction of the awesome fun you have had in your career, I shall be very happy. And, you know, as I, I've been reflecting on it, and on one of maybe one of the questions, and this is probably a later question, is when I look at your resume, And with the work, a lot of the work that I do with people who seem to, you know, veterinarians, younger veterinarians entering the profession now, seem very, uh, itchy feet's not the right word, but seem very unsettled earlier in their career, don't settle into it. And there's an awful lot of discontent. And I look at, you know, I look at the way they feel and this sort of attrition we've got. And I look at your resume and I think, are we going to see people with such rich, diverse resumes wandering through veterinary medicine as you have here because it, it really is utterly bamboozling like we, we'll put a little bit more detail into the show notes and perhaps that's that's not even a question that's an observation but I am super interested in how did you find your way into veterinary medicine? what was the inspiration if you care to comment on resumes of such quality as
0: that I mean and the quality is just the
1: richness. there's so much going on. there's so much.
0: A quick comment, my sister would refer to this as my life as being jack of all trades, master of none, because I've tried a lot of different <laughs> things. But at any rate, I, like most veterinarians, I, since I was knee high to a duck, I wanted to be a veterinarian. I was a kid on the block. If somebody found a bird out of the nest or you know a squirrel out of the nest, whatever, we would take it. My mother was just wonderful about helping me to raise these animals. So that was it. Truth be known, I got actually accepted into veterinary school without having set foot. So this three years of pre-veterinary curriculum without ever setting foot in a veterinary hospital. And I decided that summer I probably ought to work in a veterinary hospital, which I did as a kennel boy. I always wanted to be a veterinarian. And I was raised in Bethesda, Maryland, by the way. And many of my friends' parents were worked at National Institutes of Health or the Bethesda Naval Hospital, which is now the Walter Reed Medical Center. So there were a lot of human doctors in the neighborhood and what have you. And uh, yeah, I can remember once, while I was in veterinary school, my grandmother said to me, Robbie, why don't you be a real doctor? And uh, I didn't go into the details of, um, you know, I wasn't going to limit my talents to just one species, but... At any rate, I've always wanted to be a veterinarian.
1: That's an interesting thing that is. I've heard that now in my work when that's taken me across to like India, for example, springs to mind when people still, you know, veterinarians are considered very second rate uh, to medical profession uh, in human medical professions and is seen not as a, a desirable career to go park yourself in. Was that a strong thing there back in back when you were a, a whippersnapper? Or-
0: yeah. I'm curious to learn more about your parents. It was a little bit, but I don't think people understood how difficult it was to get into veterinary school compared to medical school. Now, I was told back then, too, that in medical school, a certain number of medical students who were accepted would flunk out in their junior year or whatever. Back then, there were 19 veterinary schools in the United States. I was a resident of Maryland. Maryland students went to University of Georgia. And that Georgia took students from Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. And um, out of that, there was a pool of about 600 applicants from Maryland who felt um, they had a good enough grade point average, et cetera, to apply. And they only took 10 students. So it was it was pretty difficult getting into veterinary school back then. But once you got in, you were guaranteed a seat uh, through your senior year if, as long as you studied and kept the grades up. <laughs>
1: What was your experience of veterinary school? Was it an enjoyable one? Do you look back on that with affection or?
0: We just, a year and a half ago, we had our 50th uh, celebration of our 50th year since graduating. And we commiserated a lot. It was difficult. It was, I don't think very many of our classmates really enjoyed the experience that much. And I felt like the day I graduated, if I were to get hit by a bus, I, that my life would have been cheated after, you know, three years of pre-vet and four years of vet school and all that studying and what have you. It was tough. I, I had a better time in high school than I had in vet school, to be honest. What created that
1: sense, that feeling for you and such a common thing? I'm almost a wee bit surprised to hear that. It was, wasn't what I expected of your answer.
0: Yeah, I don't know. The university system, it just seemed like... By today's standards, you could probably describe what happened as almost cruel and unusual punishment. There were some professors that just, you know, if they could bring you to tears during clinics, during rounds, they would do it. I went through veterinary school. My only exposure as a kid had been to, you know, knowing that veterinarians worked on dogs and cats. I mean, I knew they worked on other animals, but... So I wanted to be a small animal veterinarian, and as most of the class members did. And when we got into large animal, and by the way, back then more than fifty percent of the curriculum was food animal, agricultural animals, and uh, they, everybody knew that uh, some of us that didn't want we, we wouldn't want to be doing large animal medicine, and and the professors in large animal gave us the most difficult cases, the the hard to work with animals, the. Uh, you know, just to get a kick out of us small animal guys getting in with a wild horse or a wild cow.
1: I'm quite sure health and safety or occupational standards weren't really high on the list of priorities then. No, non-existent. So you, you came out, you graduated, you escaped, perhaps is the right word, yeah from that environment. And that, you did not get hit by a bus. So talk me through sort of the career pathway. You know, you, I mean, I think that the The hospital ownership, there's an early sort of zoo input there. Then, you know, long time owning your own practice, aerobics instructor. I mean, that's just a... (laughs) You're bringing up stuff (laughs) I've forgotten about. I'm like, that's always the place I wanted (laughs) to start, you know? Media work. And then one of the things that really, really jumps out at me is how much contribution to community that you've actually made. You know, you've you've gotten very involved in local associations and and things like that. So kind of as we go through the interview, interested in the motivators for you and the lessons that you've learned as you've traversed your career.
0: So basically, when I was in high school, I was very involved in Boy Scouts and went through all the ranks and what have you. And when you get become an Eagle Scout, you take a vow that you will get back to basically to the Boy Scouts. And so that's kind of where that started me in the direction of doing community service and what have you. But anyway, I graduated from vet school, took a job in Maryland for one year in a small, very busy, small animal practice to try to get as much experience under my belt as I could. And then I moved out to Colorado. While in Boy Scouts, I had gone to a Boy Scout ranch called Philmont in northern New Mexico, for two summers, and uh, I wanted to get out to that area, a boyfriend of mine and I had made a vow that if we ever grew up, we'd live in Colorado. Neither one of us has grown up, but I lived and moved out to Colorado, did relief work for about six months, and then just bought a little building and started my practice. I um, oh, practice for about 20 years, but right away, I got involved with the Denver Area Council of the Boy Scouts, and then the Denver Area Veterinary Medical Society, went through the officer ranks and became president of Denver area, and I think it was 1980. And um, at that time, a new disease was coming around in dogs called parvovirus, and it hit the East Coast and the West Coast, but it was moving in toward the interior part of the country, And we got a couple of requests from some of the media in Denver that what's this new virus and what have you. And we told the media I was going to go to the American Veteran Medical Association meeting that in July. And I said, when I get back, we'll have a news conference and I'll give you all the updates and we'll let you know where it's coming. Well, while I was gone at that meeting, one veterinarian in Denver saw a case. It was a couple that were traveling with their dog through cross country Came down with parvo in Denver. They took it to the hospital. The veterinarian called the media. Everybody came out and did uh, you know did a story on it? All three, all four television stations back then, radio, newspaper. I came back from the AVMA and I said, "Okay, I'm ready to give you all the poop on what's going on with this disease. We will see it and what have you." They said, "We've already done that story." And I said, "But there's some information we want to get out. Things like back then." We knew that flies would transport it and keep your dogs inside as most as much as you could because a dog, two houses down the street might have it, bloody diarrhea, flies get on it, you feed your dog outside, he or she might get it. Media ignored me. So for the next five years, while I was practicing and all this kind of stuff, I bugged the media. I had a, a intro actually from a guy with the Boy Scouts to do pet information on the media. And finally, in 1995, I got a call from the KUSA, that was the ABC affiliate at that time, that they were starting a new show and they wanted to have a veterinarian on one day a week. And so, I went ahead and started doing that. And for 10 years, I was the, quote, pet health expert at Channel 9 KUSA TV. So, I enjoyed doing that. And uh, that led to having a radio, colon radio show, on KOA radio, and that then led to writing a column for the newspaper for the Rocky Mountain News. So, I had all this media exposure and experience. In 1991, the Morris Animal Foundation, which happens to be located in Denver, this is a foundation that was founded in 1948. They fund research for dogs, cats, horses, and wildlife. They decided they needed a staff veterinary spokesperson And so they ran an ad in the ABMA Journal saying they're looking for a veterinarian with television, radio, public speaking, and writing experience. And I thought, that has got my name on it, I think. So I applied for it and uh, got the job. Within 10 months, the executive director left. They asked me to sit in as interim executive director. And I reluctantly said I wanted to be the staff veteran spokesperson. They said, you can do both. I said, well, I get two salaries. And they didn't think that was very funny. So at any rate, so I was executive director until 2004 when I retired. I retired from there, moved down to Florida. I'd always wanted to come back to the East Coast and get a sailboat. Bought my sailboat. Life was good. And then this group called American Association of Zoo Veterinarians, their executive director was retiring. And so they started twisting my arm, twisted and twisted and twisted until finally I said, okay. So I started in 2005 as the executive director of the American Association of Zoo Veterinarians, and that's where I am today. That's a nutshell. They're just not letting you retire. Is that right? (laughs) Like, you're not
1: getting on that boat at all. Okay. So there are a lot of places. We might bounce around on this a little bit, but I kind of want to go back to when you you started your own practice from zero. Yes. What sounds like a very short amount of time, like are you 18 months out of post-graduation at this point? Right. Was that an unusual step at the time? I mean, it's an unusual step now. People generally don't want to do that or seriously lack the skills to do that. But what was your driving
0: force behind that? Yeah, it was a little bit unusual in the fact that moving to Denver, the density of veterinarians for the number of people in the population was much higher than many more places in the country because professionals wanted to live in Denver. They wanted to go skiing and hiking and fishing and all that kind of stuff. So it was already overcrowded with veterinary hospitals. And uh, plus the fact that in Denver, the parasite situation was not very difficult at that point. Many of my classmates from University of Georgia practiced on the East Coast, where, you know, heartworm and internal parasites and external parasites is a big portion of your practice yeah. income. And in Colorado, it's very little percent of your practice income so it was a challenge I had one client in the first 10 days but at any rate yeah I just uh, I felt that that was going to be my I mean I met a couple of veterinarians doing relief work in that six-month period that I was there but no I just didn't seem like anybody was looking for a veterinarian at least in the areas of town or the quality of practice that I wanted so I just said well I'll just start my own practice found a little building that was for sale and out a shingle and that was it back then advertising it was unethical to take out more than one ad a week in a weekly newspaper the size of a business card it couldn't be any larger than a business card so it was no advertising other than word of mouth and so it was a slow start no question about it
1: what i think is very interesting to that that word of mouth is still the best form of advertising and probably always will be regardless of everything else that has changed. But I do think back to those times that uh, one of my mentors, John Sheridan, used to talk about the, the days from the, over here, the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons, you know, took a very dim view of anything that was self-promotional and deemed it to be quite unprofessional. I actually also heard a very funny story. I wouldn't mention any company names or anything here about a certain parasite product that was launched. And one of the Big, the big marquee launch event was in Denver. <laughs> it was, a, it was a, a treatment for ticks, I believe, and I, I remember hearing there was an, a very, very, very large amount of filet steaks that went home with the speaker
0: that day because there was ob- absolutely nobody in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. But I want to go back to real quickly to the, the comment you made about word of mouth. It's especially important in this day and age With the social media, because so you can advertise your veterinary hospital via social media, which is a big step from where we were, of course. But what happens is the people on the social media are going to talk to each other. So it expands your outreach dramatically. As a veterinarian, if you, number one, attend to veterinary medicine, you've got to do that and be the best clinician you can be or pathologist or surgeon or whatever, and a lot of us would have told people back when we were young adults and teenagers, the reason I went to veterinary medicine instead of human medicine is I like animals better than I like humans, right? I mean, you hear that all the time. But if you don't develop those human skills, those interpersonal skills, if you can't make your clients feel comfortable with you attending to the needs of their animals, whether they' be on the farm, in research and small animal practice and in an exotic practice, if you can't carry that human part to it, you're not gonna be successful, no matter what your skills are. So pay attention to that, you younger veterinarians, that um, you've got to be personable and you've really work on those skills. If you need to take a couple of you don't get a lot of that in vet school, I didn't.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask, were you a naturally gifted communicator? You're a great storyteller. I've noticed that already. Is that something that you developed through training, or was that something that you had about in your gift?
0: I think both. I think I had a little bit of it, but when I started at Morris Animal Foundation, I went to a lot of classes. I knew nothing about association management, interpersonal skills, working with board members, et cetera, et cetera. So I would attend, you know, actually they sent me to Harvard to a... uh, summer program called Strategic Perspectives and Nonprofit Management and learned a lot there too. So, and then of course, the media, I have to tell you a quick story about that. When I was in pre-veterinary curriculum in, at Oklahoma State University, I had a roommate who was majoring in journalism. I used to give him so much crap, say, Wally, why don't you do something real in life, like be a veterinarian or a doctor or a lawyer or you know, and uh, what's this journalism crap? Well, you know, come 15 years later, I find myself in a television station as a newbie, not knowing anything about communicating through the media. And what what was fun was number one, I was working with animals. So who doesn't want to work with animals? And so the photojournalists, when they got to film with Dr. Rob, we'd go out to do a story on how to build a doghouse or how to teach a bird to talk or you know, whatever, these crazy stories I did. They loved working with Dr. Rob for two reasons. Number one, it was the animals, and the animal stuff was always going to do well. Number two, Dr. Rob was not a recent graduate of a journalism school who knew it all, bookwork. Dr. Rob was a neophyte who would listen and learn from you, and um, so I learned a lot. So I think I was very fortunate to be able to learn from my television experience
1: there's probably three areas of inquiry starting to develop in my mind and, you know, not to sort of turn the light around and show the sort of inner workings of how podcast interviews kind of come together. But, you know, there's a lot of research and then there's a plan and then there's often, or what I've noticed is that the real plan starts to show up once you get into the conversation and maybe that's just the way my brain works. But uh, I would like to sort of just dwell on this because I think using your sort of really rich career experience as a backdrop and, Perhaps a launch pad for stories. You know, there are things like that, that ability to network, the ability to communicate that have really feel like they've contributed not just to your direction, but the sustainability of your career. And a part of that sustainability is, of course, desirability. that like people, not you, know, some, some this time, it's not you've been chasing. You've, you've actually used two instances where something developed into something else and somebody came to find you because they wanted those skills, those services. I'm kind of curious if there are any lessons that you would have for, and this is regardless of generation, but, but our colleagues listening to the show, of which there are many thousand all over the world, and people can sometimes feel a wee bit lost sometimes in veterinary medicine. You know, there is this sort of narrative. I don't like it. I don't, where I agree with it is neither here nor there, but, because it is people's experience. But people are, this is a difficult time for veterinary medicine, and, and we hear of, of people struggling. From reflecting on your experience through your career and and lots of it through giving back to community or being on boards or contributing to your, your local organizations, associations, and we're not even touching on the, the actual business bit just yet, but what are the most important lessons that you think you've learned over the years that you would take with you into the next life or pass on to anyone listening?
0: There was a movie years ago called cool hand Luke. Paul Newman, and there's a famous line in that movie where the the warden at the prison, the line is something to the effect of, what we have here is a failure to communicate. And he repeats, a failure to communicate, because Cool Hand Luke, Paul Newman, was getting in trouble all the time. And I've taken that really, really literally. And I think the thing that uh, one of the lessons that I learned Early on, and it was reinforced over and over and over, is to be able to communicate, you have to first be able to listen. Not just listen to words, but listen to concepts and thoughts and ideas. I think that if you can learn to listen, the other half of it, expressing yourself, comes fairly naturally. You know, you don't have to take coursework or anything really in in communicating. But I I think that's, as veterinarians, that's one of the reasons I went... And really pursued that work with the television station was that, you know, we tell somebody, okay, I'm going to give you, you're going to get these pills, give him one twice a day. And the client walks out. And you haven't communicated with them what giving a pill twice a day to a, maybe a difficult dog or a cat, or, you know, using a balling gun and large animals or whatever is done you have to communicate you have to really get one-on-one with the client that you're dealing with you know if you're going to get anywhere and it's not and it's not just in private practices it's like zoo vets you know the animals are owned by the zoo but the client are the keepers and if uh, people go into zoo veterinary medicine and a few of them don't make it because they don't understand the relationship that the keeper has with the animal and they can't communicate with the keeper and they won't you know it's omnivet don't ask any questions we're just going to do this that isn't going to work so i think communication is the number one thing that i would like to take to the next life but i'm coming back as a dung bug i'm sure sure of it
1: oh like that's you're sure no that's not your desire (laughs) not my desire that's probably what's going to happen though yeah, that was good. I was going to like, wow, that took a turn for the decidedly odd there. <laughs> Are there any examples of times when you look back and go, wow, oh, that just, that was a really good bit. Like, I feel like I did good. With, I mean, my communication was great there. Or examples of times where communication either, you know, got you into something good or it got you out of something bad. Are there any instances where you would, any stories you've got that, sort of bring that to life a little bit
0: yeah a lot of little stories like that but i can remember back working with the as a volunteer with the boy scouts and we were working on i had a veterinary exploring post which was the seniors part of the boy scouts but it was both it was co-educational was kids who were interested in becoming veterinarians and i can remember having a we'd have a parents night once a year for this group. And I really decided to to lay it on the line with the parents and let them know that their son or daughter is interested in becoming a a veterinarian, but here's what it's gonna take. And I just, you know, I told them financially what it was gonna take, I told them time-wise what it was gonna take about the emphasis on getting good enough grades to get into veterinary school having the, you know, the requirement that you really had to stick to it. You couldn't, it wasn't just something you could casually wander in and out of. And um, after I did that, the uh, Denver Area Council then asked me to speak to other exploring groups, parents' nights, to communicate that message that it's, it's, you know, it's all fun and games in the exploring post to see the end product, but getting there is the commitment. And and uh, I think I was fairly successful with that one. As far as I can remember many times in board meetings with the uh, Morris Animal Foundation, many of you know the late Betty White was a great animal lover. She was a, a board member of Morris Animal Foundation. I met her in 1988. Actually, I interviewed her. And then she and I became very good friends at Morris Animal Foundation starting when I started in 1991. And she would lean over to me and she'd say, Rob, if we could just get the people out of this situation, the animals would do great. Because we were dealing with, on a board like that, you're dealing with egos, everybody wants his or her own way. And um, once again, I would fall back on just listening and trying to figure out where people were coming from. Why does this person want um, Morris Animal Foundation to be a household word, which the, our public relations team was saying, no, it only needs to be a household word for the families that like animals that are philanthropic and that that have money to donate toward helping animals. So, you know, it goes back to listening, but I, I never won that battle. I have to say, there's a great, there's skill and art to putting, to dealing with, not putting up with, I shouldn't say that, but to dealing with boards and board members, but you have to put yourself in their shoes and try and see where they're coming from. And that applies to practicing veterinary medicine. Years ago, before we had leash laws, a dog get hit by a car. The owners had come in distraught. You've got the mother and the father and the two kids. The dog's got a broken leg and uh, with a, a compound fracture. The mother's angry because the dog bled on the carpet, and she's going to have to try and clean that. The husband's angry because he's going to have to pull out his wallet and pay some money for, to get this repaired. Both of the kids are crying, and they're all angry at me. But I didn't leave the gate open. But there's still, it's misdirected anger. And as a veterinarian, if you can understand where they're coming from, why are they angry at me? I didn't drive the car. I didn't let the dog out, and what have you. I'm here to help. You know, do your best to try to look at the world from the other person's view, which also really quickly, and I'll stop talking, reminds, stop. Me, it reminds me of the you know what the golden rule is the golden rule is to treat other people as you would like to be treated that's passe it's the platinum rule treat other people as they wish to be treated they might not have the same values that i have so you need to figure out what their values are and try to treat them the way they want to be treated now before we get
1: on with the episodes A quick word from today's show sponsor. Introducing the Vet Career Concierge Service. It's an easy way to find your dream job and it's a brilliantly simple concept. Instead of wasting time searching through thousands of practice jobs that might be a good fit, but frequently aren't, let the vet career concierge do the hard work. All you have to do is register, tell us all about your skills and what you're looking for from your next practice. Then your career concierge goes to work filtering, matching and approaching only practices who are a good fit. If you like the sound of a practice and you want to meet, your concierge will coach you through the interview process, help with negotiations and work to ensure you have a smooth transition into practice when you accept a role. They'll even stay in touch with scheduled career check-ins to make sure you're happy. The service is open to vets and vet nurses with at least one year in practice and legally able to work in the US, Canada, UK, EU, or Australia. To register, visit vetexinternational.com forward slash jobs and all registrants will be entered into a prize draw where you could win an Apple Watch, Magnum of Champagne, or one of several Amazon gift cards. Registration and membership is free for vets and nurses, so head to vetexinternational.com forward slash jobs jobs to sign up today. Now back to the show. Where do you pick up the clues for what those values might be and what do you do if you can't do that? Because that's an easy th- that's an easy thing for us to say here. It's actually it can be quite a challenging thing, especially when you're under duress, you're under fire and you're you're feeling very defensive in a situation like that quite understandably. How do you manage that complicated emotional entanglement that's happening there with People mad on one side, misdirecting anger at you. You're Now, potentially, your hackles are going up and you're getting defensive at best and potentially a bit angry back. But you've got this professionalism boundary that needs to check mm-hmm. that. But often the filter, it leaks through. And whether it's a word, a comment, a intonation, a way you look, or worse, if you lose it. How do you channel that? Uh, what advice would you have or what has worked for you?
0: Well, I think you use the skills that you developed in veterinary school, the the disciplines that you developed in veterinary school. Like in junior surgery, the um, professor would walk around with a hemostat or, you know, some instrument, and if you picked up an instrument wrong, he'd wrap you on your knuckles, what have you. You know, the discipline of don't, you know, once you put the mask on, don't rub you, all those disciplines that you learn, behavior, your behavior, you can learn also to manage that and the discipline. And so you take as much of the emotion out of it as you can. It's okay an hour later to think back about this office call you had with this client and what have you, and think about what you would have done differently. But I just went back, would go back into the discipline of, okay, keep your cool. Don't get excited. You know, you're here to try and do the best job you can as a veterinarian and don't get sucked into some of these things that you could potentially get sucked into. I will have to say, not everybody can do this. I was very fortunate with the TV stuff too. Television is a one-way street. You give out a message and you have no idea how it's being perceived. I can remember I did a story about heartworms and I actually, used a couple of dogs to illustrate it. Uh, the All-Dog Acting Company, Wound Dog, was like a little miniature pincher was the mosquito that would transmit heartworm from one dog to another and all. And it was well, very well received and what have you, but people would, they wouldn't remember that it was different than other worms and internal parasites. But they would go to their veterinarian and say, I just heard something about a disease of worms and has something to do with the heart. That's all they needed to know. Um, mm. But it was a one-way communication I could never figure out. I could never tell whether I was communicating what they wanted to. I did a story about animal control officers and got hate mail for it from people whose dog had recently been picked up at the pound and had to pay a fine to get their dog back. So, you know, you get hate mail from that. But um, you really... Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. It's crazy. You just need to keep your cool and uh, don't lose it remember what you know keep focused on what you're trying to do for the animal and for the people
1: you said something earlier that i wanted to circle back to and you were talking about you know when you were sat on the boards of the morris animal foundation and this was a moment that you know there was a battle that was was lost as it were how do you know when? When not to die on the hill? Like that seems like one of the hardest things for people to do. <laughs> yeah,
0: you got a big old grin on your face. that tells me there's yeah. a story. <laughs> it's the old story: is win the battle, lose the war. Right? It's difficult. It's very, very difficult. Three things that I try to remember all the time. You have to ask yourself three questions. Number one: Does it need to be said? Number two: Does it need to be said now? And number three, does it need to be said by me? And if you can't answer all three of those questions with a yes, you keep your mouth shut, lose the battle, walk away, keep your head up high. You know, in the last several years with all the political stuff and what have you, there have been articles about our inability to communicate good science to people who are just not going to believe it no matter what you do. You actually almost make it worse trying to justify with science. And uh, if you can answer those three questions, does it need to be said? Does it need to be said now? And does it need to be said by May? If you can't answer those three, yes, just that's it. You're done with the conversation.
1: I do like that because sometimes you think, well, particularly in that, that, that is a very febrile setting that seems to have developed around just about every issue that might have been considered a debate now is there's no debate. There's just a bunch of people yelling at each other from the different side of the football pitch. None of them have the interest in winning. They've all just got the interest in being in yelling, it seems. So what if it feels like it needs to be said and nobody else is saying it, even if you think, Oh gosh, I, I don't need to, is that where
0: courage kicks in and you actually? uh... At that point I resort to writing it. You know, I, after seeing Hamilton, I read the book on Hamilton. I've just read a great book on Abraham Lincoln called And There Was Light. And both of these books really tell the story of some great Americans who had a lot of insight into the way people act and what have you. And they would resort to writing. And of course, in this day and age with emails, you can then you can compose it you can edit it, sit on it for twenty four hours and then say, you know, I know we had this discussion yesterday, but I just want to say or I just wanna point out such and such. And leave it open with that. It doesn't have to be you doesn't say and I'm right and you're wrong and you know that. Yeah, it's not the people. last word or trying to score the last
1: point. That pause, that reflection, that gap between where you're at in the moment of does it need to be said and what ought to be said, it always shows up in every, so many of the conversations I have with people, that's one of the the things that is common to people who have managed to have success, and success always seems built on the relationships you have with other people. Not built on other people, but built on those relationships. And the ability to not say everything that comes directly into your head the minute it comes into it seems utterly crucial to the maintenance, of healthy relationships more than just about anything else i think i want to segue over to talk about some of the actual work this is brilliant and um i might be calling you lots just for advice on things (laughs) it's not me jumping in full bore places i shouldn't in future but actually i would love to shine the light a little bit more on i mean the morris animal foundation and the, the the zoo vet work you're doing i'm kind of curious how you ended up there. You, you had a 20-year career in, you know, with your own practice. What took you in that way? And actually, it, and this is purely my ignorance. I, actually, I was doing my little research because I, of course, heard of the Morris Animal Foundation, but I had no idea it was set up by the founder of Hills. Yeah. That's quite an interesting story.
0: Morris, uh, in 1948, he figured out, he had a practice in New Jersey, and he figured out that you could help A lot of dogs had end-stage kidney disease because they were fed table scraps and low-quality protein. And he figured out that if you made a diet that had much higher quality protein but less of it, that you could extend the animal's life. And so he started making this, experimenting with this dog food and making it. And after a while, and it was fairly successful, some of his colleagues said, Mark, when you make some more, could you make some for me? For my, I have a dog that, that's having kidney issues. So he did, and finally, Louise, his wife, said, look, we're either going to make dog food or we're going to practice veterinary medicine. We can't do both. But and let me get back up a little bit. The way he started canning it was that he was making this product for a guy who had a German shepherd who had end-stage kidney disease, and his name was Morris Frank, and Morris said, uh, "Mark, I travel a lot with my dog, and I can't, I can't make up your dog food, your prescription all the time. Can you can it?" And Mark says, "Well, <laughs> there's no way in the world I can can it." Oh, he put it in, uh, in jars, canning jars, yeah. And they break in Marks in uh, Morris Frank's suitcase. So he said, "Let's put it in cans." And Mark Morris says, Th- "World War II is going on. I can't get any cans to do this and all." And a couple weeks later, a truck dumped a bunch of empty cans on the front yard of his vet hospital and a little canning machine and a sign that says, start canning. So <laughs> Morris Frank had connections at any rate. So he was canning it and Louise said, um, we've got to, we either going to can dog food or we're going to practice veterinary medicine. So he contacted Hills packing company, which was a human packing company out in Topeka, Kansas. And got them to write the prescription to make the dog food as a prescription for him, and that was a birth of KD, which is the original prescription diet that led on to all the other ones and Hills and what have you. But they, um, the interesting part of that story is the reason Morris Frank traveled with his dog, and his dog's name was Buddy. Buddy was the first seeing eye dog in the United States, and Morris Frank's mission was to go around and tell different cities and municipalities and governments that a guide dog should get special privileges and be able to be used like that. So at any rate, that's how the foundation was founded. And it was just dogs and cats initially. And then in the 60s, they added uh, horses to the foundation and to their mission. And then in the 70s, they added zoo and wildlife with it to the foundation They're backing out a little bit of the zoo and wildlife stuff. And so the American Association of Zoo Zoo Veterinarians, we have an arm of our organization called the Wild Animal Health Fund. And we started this about 10 years ago, and we raised money specifically for research for zoo animals and wildlife. We're funding about $250,000 a year now. I jokingly say we have to be funding a million dollars a year before I retire, but I don't know that I'm going to live that long. But we are trying to build it up and and uh, fund research for these animals. When the opportunity came to go to Morris Animal Foundation, like I said, I was hired as their staff veterinary spokesperson. And one of the things that actually when I got into the television five years earlier than that, six years earlier than that, I was frustrated by the fact that veterinarians are not the best communicators in the world. And I could, I could tell 80,000 people something on a Friday afternoon on that TV show every Friday that I could speak to so many more people and expand the knowledge of what the owners needed to know uh, about animals so much more so. And so that was, it was intriguing to me. And I felt that I, I really need, needed to do that. When Morris came up and said they were looking for a veterinarian with television, radio, public speaking, and writing experience, I thought, you know, here's an opportunity for me to expand the work that I was doing and touch more and more and more people. So it was a no brainer. I, I mean, part of that was being in the right place at the right time, too. It just happened that Morris was in Denver. I would have moved regardless, but. Um, it just worked out very, very well.
1: As we're speaking, I mean it's what I'm getting is just a really nice insight into the sort of transitions in your career. And one question came completely out of the blue into my head was, and that was, how did you decide, or at what point did you decide in, enough's enough in practice and, and this other thing became a big deal for you? And I asked that, again, I, I often ask questions from a purely selfish, my own learning point of view. But, you know, that that was a a challenge for me to leave practice as well for me it was after 17 years in practice and owning my own hospitals what was it for you that you know mine was a love of something else had been brewing in me for years i just have to do this thing or i will not die happy
0: but what was it for you it was just i think the fact that after 20 years of practice in a solo practice I was not a specialist, and I was starting to refer a lot of things out to internal medicine, ophthalmology, surgery, et cetera, et cetera. And I felt that I could do more, because of the television and radio stuff, that I could do more for the public and for animals themselves by leaving and starting with Morris Animal Foundation than I could in private practice. I can remember in high school, I took an advanced biology course, and the first day of quote, lab, we had we dissection, right? And so we had our earthworms that everybody got an earthworm in the little tray with the wax on it and the needles and all that kind of stuff. And we were about 10 minutes into it. And the teacher slammed a book down on the desk and said, put them up. And unbeknownst to me, a couple of the guys in the back of the class were taking their earthworms and teasing the girls with them, or you know, like they're going to, put them and do something with them. At any rate, he put them up and he gave us a about a 30-minute lecture. The bottom line was that earthworm gave the most valuable thing in that earthworm's life to you so you could learn something. Treat it with respect. I've held that thought all of my life, and I just thought I could do more for animals going into, you know, leaving practice and going to Morris Animal Foundation And as it turned out, you know, with the American Association of Zoo Veterinarians, the same thing, trying to herd 1,300 zoo veterinarians into a singular mission and produce the journal and our continuing education programs and what have you. But uh, I just felt the animal is the end result. I'm very proud of both of these organizations that I've worked for in the mission statement. The bottom line isn't doing things for the members or the people, the bottom line is to do something for the animals. And I I think Mm. that's kind of been my guiding light. Mm. What are you most proud of in both of those organizations and the work that you've done? Proud of the people in those organizations. I'm proud of the people that, you know, I use the term herding cats, that I was able to help herd the cats. But it was the people, you know, the mark of a leader is you – believe in something and you work to try to accomplish this and what have you, and you have to work through people. But the ultimate result is you want it to be done so that the people actually contribute and that they know that it's because of their work that the good work is being done. So what I'm proud of is, I think I helped develop a couple of trustees, quite a few of the zoo veterinarians who come through the ranks as in the officers. I think that to me, that's what I'm most proud of the people that are giving back to the animals.
1: I like it. Over the course of your career, what's kind of... Sustainability is a word that just comes... I think about this almost constantly. I don't mean that in the sense of the planet in this context. I mean that in the sense of keeping going and it being something that you wake up the next day and think, cool, I get to do this again today. What's kept you sustained and energized I and mean, you sort of mentioned the animals there and, and sort of that, that doing good. And that's the bigger, you know, it almost feels like the purpose, or the mission statement for, for your career. But it's the micro things that often are the things that make us feel happy or sad or impact or, or desire. You know, I think sometimes people lose sight of the big picture or don't have that in the first instance. So they get, they get into this quagmire of things where they're struggling and, and there isn't a why to push through that. You had this bigger picture, but... In the day to day, what is it that's kept this a sustainable thing for you? And I have to say this before you, before you answer, almost every time I ask you a question and nobody in the podcast gets the joy of this, and it really is a joy, the biggest smile comes across your face so often during this interview before you speak. And it just, it gives me the sense and whether this is right or not, that you're connecting with some pretty good memories of things that have happened in your career as well. And, and, you know, everything's, sounds like it's not everything. I'm sure it's not everything, but, yeah. but and so much good stuff that you have to reflect on here. That's my context and the question or background, but I wish everybody could see this file. It's
0: great. So I think the, the one ingredient in my life that really drives me is humor. <laughs> and I just, if I can get some humor or give some humor or feel some humor That's in the nitty-gritty day-to-day stuff, no matter how tough the day is, I'll do that. I have to say, after I was hired at Morris Animal Foundation and then 10 months later became the executive director, after one or two board meetings, um, Mark Morris Jr., bless his soul, he's deceased, but uh, the late Mark Morris Jr., he pulled me aside. He said, Rob, he says, the boardroom is no place for humor. And I looked at him and I said... Mark, have you told that to Betty White because she made every board meeting and she always had three or four or five one-liners during the board meeting that everybody would just crack up about. And so I think you've got to throw a little bit of humor into things. I'll give you a, a real quick example. And this goes back to communications. When I was on television, I had for part of the time we had live animals and we had we also had a live audience. It was called "Good Afternoon, Colorado," and I asked one of the anim- I would have animal shelters bring in an animal that I would use for a demonstration. And then we, uh, at the end of that demonstration, I'd say, "By the way, this animal is up for adoption at the Colorado Humane Society or whatever." So the guy was late bringing this kitten in to me, and I can't remember. I was doing how to trim your cat's toenails or how to give your cat a pill or whatever finished up and say, by the way, this kitten's available for adoption at whatever animal shelter. We went to the full screen CG and then we came back live and the, and um, I said, 16 weeks old or whatever. And the anchor said, well, Dr. Rob, is it a boy kitty or a girl kitty? Well, I I didn't get that information because the guy was late. And in my practice on the table, I would have just picked up the tail and put my head down there and taken a look. Well, I couldn't do that on live TV, so I picked the kitten up over my head, and I'm looking up to try to get a glimpse, and, and Mark says, what are you doing? And I said, you can tell the sex of a kitten by looking at the bottom of its feet. Now, the, the audience laughed, but I have to tell you, I got so many. Back then, we didn't have internet. We had people sending postcards and letters and phone calls Doc, have Doctor Rob tell us what to look for on the bottom of the becak's feet to tell whether it's a boy or a girl. So, to me, it's the humor that gets me through and that makes me hit those challenges. And vet Med provides plenty of opportunity for it as well. Yeah,
1: yeah. Do you have any favorite stories from your time in practice or every vet I've met? Like I would say, like when when you go to bars and at conferences and people, like people, they see the sort of you know the the authors of the books and the big names at conferences at a bar and they're laughing and what are they talking about? And I think people wouldn't think they're talking about how amazing their career was and how they've got it made. And my experience is never that. It's always about the most gigantic flaming hot mess catastrophes that they had in their career or the craziest stories about animals or anything like that. Like the most fun conversations, I think.
0: So, yeah, I think for me, the most amazing thing is that I was able to leave practice saying, I have never spayed a male cat yet. (laughs) I'd come close. Grace of God. Yeah. But I, yeah, I I mean, I just, I had, uh, there were a lot of, but now remember, this is a long time ago. And there were a lot of wonderful things that happened in practice. There were some pretty good challenges in practice and what have you. And I think um, I, just nothing really stands out as far as a, a case or a certain case or anything like that that I can remember at this point. I'll think of it at 2 in the morning and I'll give you a call.
1: Perfect. You just put it in a voicemail and I'll edit it in and we'll, we'll do some audio trickery to put it in there. Absolutely fine. You've contributed a lot to your local association. I've mentioned that earlier. And sometimes I wonder, you know, and and maybe it's just my view of things on social media, but it seems to be a lot of people shouting about themselves. And I get the irony, considering how much time I do spend on social media. But you've contributed, and that's another common thread to me, that whenever you've had an interest, I'm looking across at your resume just now, you've backed up that interest with what I would call some fairly affirmative action. So, you know, if you've had a career interest in something, you've joined the society. To learn more about that, or, or when you moved into media, you joined a society dedicated to media and learning more about that craft. But you didn't just stay there. You ended up. You weren't just taking. You were clearly contributing as well. The, the amount of time you were there and the you know the officer positions that you took. You mentioned the eagle scout. So I actually kind of wanted to just touch on that for a second because I'd never heard of that phrase before, and that my, that may be my again my UK ignorance. But I researched on that and it's a vanishingly small number of people get to be Eagle Scouts by the sound of things. So I was kind of interested in that. And you mentioned that that sort of drove a lot of the contribution that you had or that value of contribution. What do you get back out of contribution? Is that something that you encourage in others? You know, Again, particularly next generation vets coming through. Like why join an association? What What are the benefits beyond the what's in it for me for that kind of activity?
0: It's not that are not what's in it for me because all of it is what's in it for me. Let me explain. If you give of yourself in several different aspects through the day to this group, that group, your practice, this and that, and you give as much as you can through the day, when you go to bed that night and lay your, head on the pillow, you have such a good feeling that I've done all I can do today to help. And of course, as a veterinarian, the animals, we'll start with the animals, but the people you work with, people you don't know, the play it forward stuff. Walking down the street, you know, when I, I do a bike ride in the morning three days a week at, on the beach road, and if I see a piece of plastic or trash on you know in the little parking lot, I'll pick it up and put it into the trash bin so that, you know, it doesn't end up in the ocean. It feels so good to me. So it is what's in it for me. The bottom line is you've got to feel good about yourself and doing those things for animals and for other people and for the environment and, you know, everything else. I do it so that I can feel good for me.
1: I love it. we Coming back to a subject that comes up often in my conversations, and those are values, really being in it, working and being in touch with those values. Okay. So, before I move on to the more rapid fire questions, I wanted to just ask you if there was anything that I haven't asked about that you would, you were very keen that we did touch on, or I've not given you the opportunity to say. In terms of messaging, before we kind of move a little bit more off the topic of your career, because we've—this is always the challenge in an interview like this, where we've got a limited amount of time. We could do an hour on the Morris Animal Foundation and its great work, and we could do an hour on the Zoo Society, and we could talk about that book that you want to write and author. And there's so much. So rather than me sort of blindly stumble around, I wondered if there's anything that you
0: felt was really important that you wanted to. Pretty across, yeah. I think the uh, to veterinarians and this the viewing or the listening audience are veterinarians mainly. Your education and learn about veterinary medicine, and the fact that you're learning about veterinary medicine in more than one species. That you're learning all the ologies, and you've got to do the rote memorization and the Krebs cycle and all that kind of stuff. Yes that prepares you for veterinary medicine but it also prepares you for life and for a career and an ability to make changes veterinarians as i don't know whether they have this before they get into veterinary school or that it's developed through veterinary school but we all have this ability to adapt this ability to be inventive i did a story about some of the guys at SeaWorld doing some research and the guy invented a He has a 10-foot or 15-foot pole with a a funnel on the top of the pole and a big tube that comes back to the boat and a suction pump, and they can go beside a whale. And when the whale exhales, they suck in the, the exhaled gases and can analyze and get a lot of data from that whale without ever touching a whale, a live whale. I mean, that's inventive. We solve so many problems because it's not just putting external coaptation on that fracture. It's keeping the animal from chewing it off. So you have all that as a veterinarian. Don't limit yourself. If you see something in life that you feel like it's time for a change, you're capable of doing it. The only caution is that a lot of veterinarians fail at second careers because you don't put as much effort into your second career as you did into your first career. So if you do decide you want to move into something different or a different aspect of veterinary medicine, use the same commitment you did to get into and out of veterinary school and you'll do fine.
1: How do you keep yourself energized to that level? I think that's actually a really interesting point, particularly with this sort of notion of a career passport and this almost a portfolio career. Like you, you're you almost a poster child for an early portfolio career. I mean, you you did the time in practice, but then. I mean, heck, you're, you're still doing your career now. So I think that, that the tag probably fits. But you do put so much energy in and you've got so much energy when you're young. How do you then put the same energy in to deal with the a failure, to to walk the road of attrition that's required to get good at anything? You do have to put in the hours. You do have to put in the practice. You do, frankly, have to stuck at it for quite some time before
0: you get good at it. What message would you have for others? Two of them, actually. And once again, these came from one mentor that was I was close to and one mentor I don't know. Betty White, who I've known since 88, as everybody knows, she practiced her trade until her late 90s. And when I retired from Morris Animal Foundation, she gave me a raft of it of rob you cannot retire you th- you know d- that's crap you, she just she wouldn't let me do it so that was a pretty good inspiration from someone who who walked the talk the other one and it's fairly recent was clint eastwood was playing golf with toby keith on a sunday when they finished up toby said i heard it's your birthday tomorrow what are you doing clint he says we're blocking a movie this is like 6 years ago he said, "Oh, you! At your age, you're doing another movie," and Clint said, "Yeah." He says, I'm, I, "And I'm excited about it." And Toby says, "How in the world do you do that?" And Clint said, "Don't let the old man in." So Toby Keith, who's a country western performer and writer, wrote a song called "Don't Let the Old Man In," and um, you can see it on YouTube. It's and it was actually used in the movie that. Clint Eastwood was making called the Mule, and so I think about that all the time. Just don't let the old man in. So I've, I'm getting up there in years, a little bit long in the tooth, but I'm living every day as if it's my last. And um, just don't let the old man in. God, I've got goosebumps. I
1: almost don't want to ask any rapid fire questions now. That's just like the perfect, perfect sort of endpoint. But I'm gonna. <laughs> Because editing might be able to mess that around anyway. So I've gotten a real sense of the things that you do perhaps better than anyone else. But how would you describe what your superpower is? And before you cringe too much at that, because lots of people don't like to talk about things like that, but I will want to know what your kryptonite is as well. What's the thing that you struggle with the most?
0: I think for me is the word no. I can't say it. I mean, I have said it occasionally, but when someone presents me with something, say, Rob, could you help out with this? Could you do this? Could you do that? I do bite off more than I can chew. I end up spending longer hours than I should be and what have you. But um, that's my weakness is the inability to turn down an opportunity where I think I can grow and learn and where I think I can help animals. that's your kryptonite. Is that your superpower as well? You know, it might be, Dave, when you think about it. I think that's, uh there's still a lot of things yet to be done. I had a psychologist tell me one time he, he pulled the, I used to keep a list of things to be done on, on my, on a little card, a three by five card in my pocket. He pulled it out of my pocket one day. He said, Rob, he says, this list is going to be just as long the day you die as it is today. So get used to it. But I think the having stuff on that list of things that need to be, that need to be done and, and not having to say no to all of them, I think is that energizes me. And I you mentioned the book and I I'll just say so I hope when I retire from here to do a book, when Zuvets get around the bar in the evenings at conferences and what have you, the stories come out, you'll never guess what happened to me how I got gored by a whatever, or I got pinned by or bitten by or lost a finger to or this and that. So the name of the book is We Shouldn't Be Alive Right Now. It'll be chapters written by various veterinarians. I'll edit it. We have to be careful that we don't identify any of the institutions that are in there. But there are some wonderful, wonderful stories. And it's not about being careless or anything, but as veterinarians, you know, many times, you'll say, you know, I thought about putting a muzzle on that dog, and I didn't. Or I thought about, you know, this or that, and I didn't, and this is what happens. So that's on my list.
1: Put me down for a copy already. All right. That that might be quite an amusing book, I suspect. Do you know, as you were talking about what your superpower and your kryptonite was, I was just struck by how maybe it might be okay to let a
0: little bit of the old man in. There's plenty of time for that. (laughs) plenty of time for that (laughs) that's me me being mischievous
1: but okay so what was the best piece of advice you ever received and the part two of the question will be what was the worst piece of advice you either received or you gave someone you can choose either side
0: i think the the best piece of advice i got was from my dad and it was the the dad's speech when you're getting out of high school, Vietnam was in full tilt here in the United States. If you didn't go to college, you went to Vietnam. And the best advice that, uh, the basic advice that he gave me was that, Rob, you need to apply yourself. I was, a, you know, in high school, I was all over the place and, you know, music and I was a drum major for two years in the band, and gymnastics team and all that kind of stuff and he said you're going to need to focus you wanted to be a veterinarian all your life now's the time to focus because if you don't you're going to Vietnam and Vietnam for a lot of people was a death sentence so that was yeah. that was the best the worst also probably came from Betty White <laughs> I hate to keep bringing this up But Betty waited a long time to get married to Alan Ludden, the love of her life. It was her third marriage, actually. She had two very short marriages back in the 50s. And she married Alan Ludden. He died of cancer nine years later. And she regretted that. And I had met a person who I had romantic interests in, but we lived apart. She was in Aspen and I was in Denver. And we kind of rushed into it. I was 50 years old at the time. And had we lived together or been together in the same city, I would have known that she had some mental issues that were really serious and what have you. And we did get married, and it, it only lasted four years, and she had, actually was institutionalized. But the worst advice from, came from Betty, saying, you know, do it because you'd never know how long you're going to live and all that kind of stuff. So, But it was all learning lessons, right? Oh. It's only a failure if there's no lesson learned. That was
1: a piece of advice I was given by another (laughs) guest. Very good. (laughs) Which I've tried to remember a lot. (laughs) Yeah. You've mentioned a few books as we've gone through, or movies or songs, actually, and I'll try and capture those and, and maybe put links up to those in our show notes. But is there a particular book that you've read in your life or recently that has been impactful for you, or perhaps you've been inspired to give to others that, that stands out for you?
0: Yeah, what first came to mind was I read Les Mis oh yeah. and Hugo's um, book, that, and it's all 900 and some odd pages with sentences that are a page and a half long and that kind of thing. That really inspired me as far as learning about, you know, the French Revolution and people trying to do something about their situation, to better their lives so uh, that was really 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 important to me that's um that's probably up there
1: yeah and i attempted to ask a bit about the behind the scenes there and
0: you know what did that inspire in you i mean there's so many heroes in that novel and there's so much emotion and human trauma and all that kind of stuff i mean the story the initial story of Cosette's mother having to, you know, pay this kind of basically ransom for somebody to take care of Cosette and and all. And the struggles she went through and then down she got fired from the factory and ended up on the street and then, um, you know, ended up getting a disease and dying. Those kind of things are, you know, it's just inspirational to try to treat people. You know, it was the factory worker and it was Jean Valjean. Who actually let her get fired, who was the one that then adopted Cosette and you know took care of her for the rest of her life? Those are important lessons, so I think that's that has inspired me a lot. All right. If you could give yourself, you go back in time to
1: when your your graduation day from your veterinary college, the day you escaped? Yes. what advice would you give yourself? if you could go back there pop out of a behind a curtain when you're raising that glass of champagne or
0: wherever you celebrate and just have a quiet word in your ear that nobody else could see. What would those words be? I didn't know them then, but I know them now. And it's from the cider house rules where he had this off orphanage and every night he'd say to all the boys in the orphanage, be of use, just three words, be of use. And, that's kind of, you know, between that and the Boy Scouts and, you know, all the other stuff that I've gotten into, I think that's, that's it. Be of use.
1: Be of use, be of service. Uh, And certainly that was one of the things that just jumped out so much at me in the resume was just exactly how much contribution has, how much you have contributed to our profession over the years. Rob, what an absolute pleasure to spend just a fragment, a filament of of this wibbly-wobbly time that we have on this planet together. I'm so glad to have sat down next to you at that table, and this interview did not disappoint in any way. I've really enjoyed our conversation. So thank you so much for your time. If people wanted to get in touch with you, or maybe you don't want people to get in touch with you, but in the interest of not letting the old man in, if they've got projects to which you can't possibly say no, or that you'd like to learn more about your work or or support the Morris Animal Foundation or any of the projects you're involved in, where's the best place for them to reach out to you? How do you prefer people to get in touch?
0: It's admin, A D M I N, at A A Z V dot org. That's the American Association of Zoo Veterinarians dot org. So it's admin, A D M I N, at aazv.org
1: and if you have an interest in zoo medicine wildlife conservation I'm assuming people like that you know you would be a huge inspiration and and help to those interested in furthering their careers in that department so strongly encourage a reach out and a conversation with this gentleman I'm sure it would be very very worth your while Rob last words to you any parting shots before we
0: uh, let you go Live your lives, live them so when you look back on your life, you can say, Be proud of your life, not haughty, but just proud. Just be happy with your accomplishments. And you know, life is good, treat it like you love it. Fantastic! Thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you, Dave. My pleasure.
1: Just me, again, before you jump off, the usual request: Please don't ignore these. Uh, they're really important if you can help us out a little bit here. Firstly, say thanks to Dr. Robert if you enjoyed that episode. So many nuggets. This is an episode that I am going to listen to over and over. And I hope to call in his wisdom many times in the future. I can see very much why nobody wanted to let him retire. And if you're enjoying the show, if you think somebody would benefit from listening to this episode, don't forget to share it with them on the socials or leave us a review on iTunes. We love when we get reviews from you guys. So if you've enjoyed it, just take five seconds to leave a review. All that remains is to say thank you for listening. And until next time, be safe, be well, and be happy.